is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. You probably heard that the national COVID emergency will finally come to an end with uh, President Biden telling Congress that it will all stop on the 1st or the 11th, actually, of May. So we will go in depth into what that means for all of us and for our wallets, because there is going to be a financial impact. Doctors, uh, they have a viable treatment for COVID, but it might not be used as much as it should be used. We'll talk to an ER doctor about that. And George Santos continues to make headlines on Capitol Hill. The New York congressman now says he will step down from two House committees, but he still refuses to resign his seat in the House. Are you tired of the whole game? Democrats versus Republicans, Republicans versus Democrats. A lot of people are. And that's why more and more of them are identifying as politically independent. We go in depth into whether a big third party can rise soon. And we have a term for being unhappy at work. You might have heard of quiet quitting. Now there's rage applying. We'll explain. Rage applying? Rage applying. Okay. Does that happen? I guess that happens before you quietly quit. Uh, it could be part of quiet quitting. Unless you're, what yeah. was the other one, loudly being fired? <laughs> loudly, like yeah. loudly fired. Okay. We begin, though, with the upcoming end to COVID restrictions uh, and the federal emergency. Back with us is Dr. Arthur Kaplan, founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being with us again. Hey, thanks for having me back. So uh, a lot of people, you know, they, they hear about the the federal emergency coming to an end, as I mentioned, on May the 11th. And, you know, I'm sure they think, well, that's pretty good. And it is good. Uh, however, as we also mentioned, there is going to be a financial cost to that, isn't there? There is. <clears throat> so some of us have been used to getting free COVID tests, as many, if you're privately insured, as eight a month. That's going to come to a halt. Uh, some of us have been getting things like uh, medicines, uh, antibody treatments for COVID, if we have it, paid for. That's coming to an end when you pull this declaration of an emergency. going to have co-pays coming back, and uh, some plans will just say we don't pay for that anymore. In a bigger way, Medicaid got extended. Say, CHIP programs, Medicaid uh, programs to the poor in California and elsewhere – and they're basically going back to throw people off the rolls because when you had the pandemic and the emergency, you could say, look, we're extending coverage. Got to make sure people are taken care of in this uh, health emergency. You take that away and all of a sudden people are going to find themselves without health insurance and a lot of them. And how will this affect business as well? Uh, talking about employees who get COVID, they've got to take some time off to recuperate. Yeah. So many businesses under the emergency would say, look, we can't really negotiate that you should stay home if you're infected. We can't really uh, get into the benefits uh, that you might have. It's a public health emergency. We're going to be generous now, less so. So all of a sudden, I think people are going to find that that employer expects you back in the office, even though a lot of us got used to working from home and that they're not as willing to be if you will, tolerant of sick days and so on. I should add, by the way, there's still 500 people a day dying from COVID. It's not like it disappeared. It is getting better. More people have caught it and more people got vaccinated. That's all good. 
but it's you know two airplane uh two air crashes a day still it's not like it fell off the map and i'm a little bit nervous that when we pull these uh, emergency declarations, you know, the safety net for COVID goes with it. Well, and you mentioned uh, vaccines. And there again, I think it's like, uh, and if you know a, a different figure, uh, let me know. But I think it's about 15 percent only of the adult population who qualified for the new booster actually has gotten. Right. I think that's the number, right? Yeah, 15 percent. Mm-hmm. Well, that's when it was free. But once this emergency declaration ends, any vaccines, uh, uh, Pfizer, I think, has already said it plans to charge something like $145 for the shot. And if you have insurance, Correct. you know, you may have to pay a copay. Who knows what that will be? If you don't have insurance, then I guess it's out of pocket unless you can find a clinic that will give it to you for free. So what I don't get about this is, on the one hand, the government is telling everybody we need to increase our vaccination rate. More people need to be vaccinated. On the other hand, it seems to me that we're now going to be doing everything possible to make sure that a lot of people won't get vaccinated. Yeah, I agree with that description 100 percent. And 15 percent of adults getting their boosters is very sad because we know that those shots, they don't prevent you from getting COVID, but they keep you out of the hospital. To be frank, they keep you out of the morgue. So it's a very good thing to get your boosters and people should be doing it and There's even a little window now before this emergency declaration goes off to go do that. Um, Better vaccines are coming down the road. We may even see a nasal spray next year. So, so, but but here's but let me let let me interrupt because but you're going to have to pay, right? But but here but here's the thing too. It it seems to me, Um, on the one hand, in fairness, uh, one of the reasons they're ending this declaration is frankly Congress was not willing to go along and cough up more money to continue to support these programs. Correct. But on the other hand, it almost seems as if the government is now being somewhat delusional. I mean, you have the World Health Organization just yesterday saying this is still a pandemic. It's still yep. a, an emergency situation. You have physicians all across the country telling people you need to get vaccinated. You need to follow certain precautions. And now our own government is kind of pretending. And isn't it that it's sort of pretending that it's all gone away? I'm going to say, yeah, I hate to say that, but I think. It's gotten to be not a public health issue, COVID. It's gotten to be a political issue. So as people get tired of COVID, they get exhausted about messaging about COVID. Politicians both sides of the aisle sort of say, well, you know, it's dropping down a bit in terms of deaths, in terms of who's not at work. Eh, Maybe we'll move away and move on to other things. Unfortunately, the virus doesn't happen to agree. Hey, one other thing. The Title 42 border policy that let people be blocked from coming into the country during an emergency uh, if they uh, were worried about COVID, that's going away, too. Hmm. So I think this will become part of immigration policy again. That's uh, another side effect of this. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Arthur Kaplan, founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's School of Medicine. Uh, Right now, doctors have a drug found to reduce the severity of COVID. It saves lives. You probably heard of it because we've talked about it, Paxlovid. In, in fact, I've I've taken it when I've had mm-hmm. 
COVID. You have two? I have two. Uh, both my wife and I, uh, uh, when we uh, got COVID, we had to get the Paxlovid. But we had to talk to a doctor to get it. We couldn't just ask for it. The doctor had to approve. I got approved because of, I've got issues. My my wife also had issues, so we both got it. Right, and, and, and I got it here. I think I mentioned on the air once, uh, I was in Spain a couple months ago, and I got COVID again, even though I'm, I'm very Spanish, well vaccinated. Spanish COVID. Yeah, but they have Spanish COVID. But in Spain, you can't get Paxlovid very easily at all. So I, I wasn't able to take it. But here in this country, where it is relatively compared to, let's say, Spain, uh, easy to get, it is being underused. White House data finds that doctors prescribed it in about 45 percent of recorded COVID cases across the country during the first two weeks of January. Dr. Angelique Campin is an ER doctor at Providence St. Joseph Medical Center in Burbank and a clinical professor at UCLA. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Hello. Hi. So why is it uh, so that we have a, a pretty good, uh, and some might even say miraculous, and I hate to use that word with medicine, but I guess it is, antiviral, very effective, fairly low in side effects for most people. Why do so many doctors uh, either refuse or are hesitant about writing that prescription? Well, I think that a lot of physicians are not comfortable giving it because it is a relatively new medicine. The the good thing though is it has be, it has been shown to be so effective and so safe that it now can be gotten at your pharmacy from a pharmacist. You don't have to have a medical doctor prescribe it to you. You can go directly to a pharmacist, a doctor in pharmacy. Now, we talked about the side effects, uh, you know, are not too bad, but there are some. Uh, I had some side effects to it. Is that something that might scare people off when they hear someone on social media talking about, yeah, I got the Paxlovid and then we got, I got the COVID symptoms again? So there are some side effects. There's the risk of getting rebound where the symptoms come back after you finish taking it. A lot of people can get an, an odd metallic taste in their mouth. Um, but all in all, those are uh, relatively benign compared to symptoms that people may have from long COVID. And they're finding that treating with Paxlovid reduces your chances of getting any long-term symptoms from COVID. Another reason doctors may be hesitant to prescribe it is there are a lot of interaction. There's a long list of medicines that interact with Paxlovid. The majority of those medicines, though, are ones that could probably be held for the week that you're taking the Paxlovid without a problem. Um, but I think that that does scare some doctors away. Yeah, and, and, and that is a particular problem, isn't it? Because some of these meds, uh, I think statin drugs are among them, uh, are, are medicines that, that uh, very often are medicines that, that older people might be taking. And so the very people who are most at risk for getting complications from COVID are taking the very meds that many doctors are now reluctant to prescribe Paxlovid for because of those meds. You kind of go around in a circle. Correct. But like I said, a lot of those medicines can be held. So cholesterol medication is can be held okay, safely for one week or for five days while you're on the medication. Um, there are just a few 
uh, medicines that, that can't be stopped, that must be taken every day, like blood thinners that, that do interact with Paxlovid. All right. Uh, thank you, Dr. Uh, Angelique uh, Kamet, for joining us. ER Dr. Providence St. Joseph Medical Center in Burbank, also a clinical professor at UCLA. Well, could we finally be ready for a powerful third party political one? And there is a new buzzword or phrase to describe frustrations with work. We'll tell you what it is. Right now, though, New York Republican Congressman George Santos told colleagues he is temporarily stepping down from his two congressional committees. Uh, you probably familiar with the story of George Santos by now, told uh, a lot of lies in his resume, uh, things that did not turn out to be true, things that could not be confirmed, and on and on. With us is Joe Anuda, a reporter for Politico, covers New York politics and has been following the uh, George Santos story. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so... He, him telling his colleagues he's stepping back from these two committees, uh, I get the impression this is not so much uh, him making this decision as uh, Kevin McCarthy maybe sitting him down and talking to him and saying, you need to make this decision and do this. It, do I have it right? Well, I think what we know, um, you know, two of my colleagues in D.C. wrote about this today, um, that uh, Congressman Santos made this announcement in a, a GOP caucus meeting today. Um and that he had spoken with um, Speaker McCarthy last night. Um, so I think clearly what we can say is this does take a little bit of pressure off the speaker. You know, um, I think Santos is becoming um, a bit of a distraction during hearings. You know, he has a gaggle of reporters basically following him around the hill at all hours. Um, and I think the speaker's getting asked about this constantly about committee assignments, and they're obviously trying to remove uh, a Democrat from uh, a very prominent committee. And so I do think it gives uh, the speaker, you know, a little bit of a talking point here to say, oh, well, we did take some action, but um, he is not out a vote because I think, you know, Santos supported his bid for the speakership and he has been a reliable vote for him. And they have only a five-vote majority um, in the House. So, um, yeah, I think there's a bit of a balancing act that's going on there for him. But does it end up being yet another one of the congressman's sort of scams? Uh, because you do all your work, and you know this, in Congress, basically on committees. And if you're not on any committees, there's not that much you can do. So mm -hmm. doesn't, doesn't he now end up drawing a salary for being a United States congressperson allegedly representing the people in the district who voted for him, but without being on any committees, he essentially is useless. I mean, I, th I think definitely if you're not doing the work on the committee, I think you're totally right that, you know, you're not getting a lot done in the body. Um, and I think locally not much is happening in his district office either. I mean, he hasn't even changed the sign. I believe it still says, Tom Swazi, who was the Democrat who represented that district before him. Well, maybe he's both. Um, yeah, yeah, he, he's he both. might be using that name as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was a poll that came out in New York um, and an overwhelming majority of people um, in the district, Republicans and Democrats alike, you know, they don't think he should be in office and they did not support McCarthy's decision to name him to any committees at all. Um, so I think, you know, it's interesting to me the um, difference in 
um, local Republicans and how they see George Santos and national Republicans like Kevin McCarthy. Um, you know, I think we see this with today's announcement that I think McCarthy doesn't want to go far enough to lose a vote, whereas the local Republicans here in New York, um, in Queens and Nassau County, which is the suburb um, right next to, to Queens abutting New York City. But but that, that ship might George sail, Santos though, anyway, because there are some other investigations into Mr. Santos regarding some uh, campaign finance issues. Uh, and those could come into play as well, where, where Kevin McCarthy may be forced to a position where he has no choice. Well, you know, he said basically um, if the House Ethics Committee finds that he broke the laws and they would think about removing him. Um, I think we have investigations now from federal prosecutors um, in New York in the Eastern District and um, the state attorney general, Letitia James, here in New York. And really the the strongest statement that we've seen has come out of the Nassau DA's office. I think they have a lot less to sink their teeth into as far as potentially what they're going to investigate compared to federal investigators. So so but what does it again, but, but, to, but to go back to what we were saying before, since he's not on any committees uh, and I am curious, what what does he then do on a daily basis in Congress? Is he sort of nothing more than an animated uh, room decoration or what does he do? <laughs> I mean, that's a great question. Um you know, I, I'm not sure how much anyone really wants to him participating in any activities. I think really he's kind of just a vote at this point. I think that's his most important function for the speaker um, and probably not much beyond that. You know, I can't see him whipping votes for any priority he cares about. Um, I don't think he's made a lot of friends there. Um, but I do think he's still crucial to the caucus because they have such a slim majority and you see what they're trying to do now with uh, removing uh, Representative Omar from um, her committee. You know, it doesn't seem like they have the votes yet. And so I think he's still for the for House Republicans plays a crucial role um, at this time, even though he's not on the committees. All right. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Joe Anuda is a reporter for Politico, covers New York politics, has been following this whole George Santos story. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. With another presidential election approaching, voters will once again choose between a Democrat and a Republican. Yes, there is a Green Party, Libertarians, a few other small parties, but those candidates realistically don't have any chance. Yeah, they have zero chance despite Gallup's finding two out of every five Americans identified as politically independent last year. Now, that's higher than people who identify as either Democrat or Republican. Tony Smith is a political science and law professor at UC Irvine. He's also the editor-in-chief of Political Research Quarterly. Tony, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So we're not really a country of, of... We may be technically a country that thinks of ourselves as being independent and independent-minded, but when it comes to voting, we do tend to go into Republican and Democratic tribes, don't we? Yeah, we do. We have these structural um, institutions that make it that so that you really can only have two viable parties. And in particular, it's the winner take all um, setup of the House. So because each district only has one person, it's really hard to have more than two viable parties, because if you have a third party, uh, whoever uh, co-ops some of the other parties um, voters wins the race. 
But I'll tell you, I think we're in a little different position than we've typically been with our independent claiming voters. Um, as, as you know, typically, historically, somebody that says they're independent really normally either votes for a Democrat or Republican most of the time. But this is a little different, I think, because of Trump's uh, relationship with the Republican Party. So you have people that used to be uh, independents that didn't vote or they voted Libertarian or the Constitution Party or some of these other marginal parties who think of themselves as Trumpers. So they're voting Republican, but they're pro-Trump. And then you have other people who are historically Republicans. Think of like the Mitt Romneys of the world who are now not saying that they're Republicans anymore because they don't like Trump. So you've got an interesting makeup in half the distribution of the so-called independents that that could rise up and give us a third party, depending on what Trump does in two years. To your point, I, I think we saw some uh, information out of Arizona in the midterms that there were some Republicans who are anti-Trump and they voted for Democratic candidates in Arizona, even though they would have never done that before. But they were so they had such a big problem with with Trump and with the people around them that they they would have preferred the Democrat to win instead. In a lot of cases, that's why some Democrats won in Arizona. At least that's what that, some political experts tell us. I think you us. can look to Georgia as well. Yeah. Uh, the state of Georgia has two Democratic senators because of those um, anti-Trump Republicans. Um, so you can imagine that if Trump doesn't win the primary, uh, he might launch a third party campaign and be somewhat of a viable candidate, probably more viable than any third party candidate we've seen. And he might peel off those um, hardcore Trumpers who are not hardcore Republican identifiers. Um, and uh, we don't know what would happen. Likewise, if he wins the nomination, you might have somebody um, um, like, uh, you know, I don't know, um, uh, Mitt Romney decide to run as a third party to try to start a new Republican Party that would that would be um, in, in contrast to the Trump is Republican Party. You can imagine Lynn Cheney getting behind this, Adam Kinzinger, some of these kinds of more traditional Republicans that have a, a roster of policy that's disconnected from the one guy. Tony, I'm curious, because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but our founding fathers of this country, they didn't want political parties, right? And, and so you are absolutely correct. But they also passed um, or, or enacted the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, which allow you the freedom to assemble, the freedom to speak and the freedom to petition your government or whatever you want. And once you put those things together, you get political parties because the collective action barriers to one individual changing the way government works are, are just too complicated. So if you want to be president and you want to win across multiple states in the electoral college, you, you have to join a party because it's just too big of a logistical nightmare to try to run it without a party. I, I was wondering, I, I asked that question because I was wondering, and of course, there's no way to really know this, but but I'm wondering if they would have thought highly of this trend toward voters considering themselves independents as opposed to being aligned with a particular party. Well, you know, we, we often think of them as, you know, um, Thomas Jefferson was born in a log cabin, he built with his own hands, and George Washington was actually made out of stone and was a a marble giant. 
Um, none of that's really, true. These guys, none of, that, none of that's true. Hold on. Wait a minute. Yeah, none of that's true. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, we, yeah, right, right. Exactly, right. So, uh, but these guys were, were politicians. They, they, they despised parties, but they're also the ones who created them. You know, okay. the Democratic Party is a descendant of the party that Jefferson started. And John Adams was so bad at being president, despite the um, documentaries about him talking about how great he is and all that, that he destroyed his party, the Federalist Party. They lost from the top of the ticket all the way down um, in, a, in remarkable, a remarkable slaughter. So they they were opposed to the concept of parties but they embraced parties for their own purposes at the time. How realistic is having a major third party uh, rise up anytime in the next 20, 30 years? Because, and the reason I ask that is because it would be like some small computer company saying, we're going to take on Apple. Well, Apple is so big and they've got so much money and they can do so much marketing, it would be in, nearly impossible to dethrone them. Uh, and it feel it seems to me like that's the same situation you have with Democrats and Republicans. The parties are too big, too entrenched. And and they've got too too much money and power behind them that any third party a, is just going to get squashed. I, I think that's absolutely right. But the in, historically, where third parties have emerged and either then survived, think about um, the current Republican Party comes about um, with Lincoln and some others that really found it um, because they're dissatisfied with the other parties that are available. Um, they come from internal splits. So the third party would not come from the Green Party or the Libertarians or the Constitution Party. The third party would come from either the Republicans splitting in half, perhaps over Trump, or the Democrats splitting in half over something else later on. So imagine if somehow um, AOC was old enough to be the nominee. She may be by by next time. And she somehow won the won the presidential um, nomination and it was her with Bernie Sanders as his vice as vice president, there would be a significant number of Democrats who would be very unhappy with that. Right. And they might would start a, a third party. It's unlikely at this scenario, because right now the Democratic Party is much more consolidated from a policy standpoint than the Republican Party. All right. right now, the Republican Party has the big cleavage in it between are you a Trump supporter or not? And even the baby Trumps like uh, um, Ron DeSantis, I've heard some people call him Ronald Trump Jr. Um, it, you know, even those guys, they're still at war with the sort of the Lynn Cheney's of the world. Um, the the people that want Russia to win in the Republican Party are not your father's Republican Party. They're not Reagan's Republican Party. Right. So the Republican Party is either going to have to purge itself of the isolationists or if the isolationists keep control over the party like Trump has, then the people who are the globalists have to break away and say, hey, look, peace is good for business. We are not going to let NATO down. OK, so, Tony, Tony, uh, I, I we could go on for another hour on this. Absolutely. But unfortunately, we're not able to. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Tony Smith is a political science and law professor at UC Irvine. Well, you know, people have always had jobs that they've decided for one reason or another. They just had enough of and, and they wanted out. They wanted mm-hmm. to get another another job. Yeah, there's quiet quitting uh, when you just do the bare minimum and nothing more. Now there's a new term. It's called rage apply. And here explaining exactly what that is, is Julie Bokey, uh, President and Chief 
career strategist at the Boki Group. Uh, thank you for joining us. So what is RAGE applying? Don't you love all these terms? We have quiet them. quitting, quiet hiring, RAGE applying. Yeah. Loud you know, firing. Really, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But there's really nothing new here. Uh, RAGE applying is, so we've got, we've got so many factors here that play into this. We've got the fact that there's thousands of people being laid off on one hand. Monster released a survey a couple weeks ago saying that 96% of people are looking for a new job, which is 96% of anything is hard to believe. And then you've got the fact that people are in jobs doing more with less because their organization hasn't been able to fill the open positions. They are feeling like they are underpaid where they are because their company in a lot of cases is hiring people, paying them more than the person who's already been doing the job. And we've just got this, we've, we've just got this mess of stuff going on. And so people are saying, you know what? I've asked for a raise, or maybe I haven't, but I think you should have given me one. I want out of here. And so I'm going to get out of here by any means necessary. And so the rage applying is really, I'm just going to apply, 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 apply until somebody saves me. And it's just, you know, because of what I do, I see this and it makes me cringe because from a job seeker standpoint, it's a really bad strategy because the, the Gen Z, they don't know. Gen Z and millennials, they're not good at thinking about their careers. They don't have the experience yet. They aren't good at sitting down and talking to their bosses about what they want and what they need. So their solution, and I've seen this over and over again with clients, is I'm just going to... I'm just going to get out of here because anything has to be better than this place. But but you, it, start, but, but, minute, but you started off uh, saying that it, it really isn't anything new. And, and the way you're describing it, it doesn't sound like it's anything new. I mean, haven't people always, <laughs> if, if they're unhappy with their jobs, they, they'll, you know, years ago, you'd, you'd send out, uh, you know, you'd go to the Xerox machine, you'd make 20 copies of your resume yeah. and you'd mail them out. So now maybe you, you send out a, a, you know, a blast email or something like that. But haven't people always done that when they're unhappy with yeah, wherever absolutely. they're working? They have. And, and it's just, I think it's new because we've got a couple of factors. Technology obviously has completely changed not only the way we work, but the way we look for a job. And the younger generations are less likely to stick around in a place where they don't feel like they have opportunity. They're being paid well. They're being appreciated. Where boomers and Xers, Gen X, we were we had a very different attitude toward work and in a lot of ways still do which is you stay, you work hard, and it'll all pay off. And I think what's what's happening is the younger generations have watched their parents run their careers like that, and they're, they're saying, you know, it doesn't always pay off. And so they're not afraid to leap, and if it's wrong, they'll well, do it again I, and do it again. I think part of it is also, you know, some people stay at work. I'm not saying this about me or Charles uh, by any uh, stretch of the imagination, but some people stay in a job they don't like because they like the security and also because they're living lives of quiet desperation. Yes. Oh, my gosh. You know what's so crazy is the number of people, and Gallup has really been, always been the leader in this area for years and years. And they've done surveys on employee engagement, which is really defined by, you know, how 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 happy are you at work? How aligned do you feel to the mission? How appreciated and valued do you feel? And that number has always been, the number of people who feel engaged at work has always been 
you know, 25, 30%-ish. So there's an awful lot of us out there who are sticking to and holding on to what we have because of the fear of, and and I've been doing this for a long time, and fear is probably the number one reason why people are afraid to switch jobs is they it's the devil I know is better than the devil I don't. And that's not always true. And so what's interesting, though, is that that always worked. That model and way of thinking always worked for employers until now. This younger generation, they're like, I don't care if thousands of people are being laid off. I'm getting the heck out of here. I'll figure it out. And employers do not know what to do with that. Well, and another thing has changed, too, it seems to me, and that is that before we ended up having, you know, uh, Obamacare, which did make it easier, does make it easier for people to get health insurance, no matter what their age is or or their uh, uh, their own uh, economic situation might be. You know, we were the only country, really, I think, certainly in the Western world, where health insurance was tied to your job. So people were afraid to leave their jobs because they were afraid that they would be left without health care in case they got ill or they got into an accident. Whereas now you can fairly easily get low cost or moderately cost health insurance on the marketplace. So you can tell your boss, you know what, Uh, I'm out of here. Yep. Yep. And the, the confidence that the younger generations have right now is that, you know what, even if I make this move and it doesn't turn out to be the right one, eh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll throw together some side hustles and I'll figure it out where, you know, we, the older generations really were very much like, I'll be a job hopper. I'll be a pariah. Nobody will ever hire me. And it's just not true anymore. And the more boomers retire from the market, the more, because right now, Gen Z, the oldest Gen Z person in the market is 25. And so they are, as time goes on, this sort of attitude toward work is going to be more pervasive. And I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just different than what it has been. But employers, so remember, organizations are still run a lot of, in a lot of cases by Gen X and younger boomers. Right. They are absolutely wringing their hands. Like, look at Elon Musk. What did he do? Pound his fist on his desk. Get back to work. And his people went, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, right? And so we would have gone, yes, sir. Please give me another. Yeah. You know, so it's just a whole different attitude toward work. And there's definitely a lot of it that's very healthy. Well, thank you so much, uh, Julie Bauke. And I said Bauke there at the beginning, and I hope you don't fire me over that. <laughs> uh, President Chief uh, Career Strategist at the uh, Bauke Group on Rage Applying. Don't you're showing your rage there for a second? A little bit, a little bit, a little bit. A little There's bit. always rage inside. Yeah, you were talking about before about quiet desperation. Yeah. I'm more like vocal desperation. <laughs> we know you're desperate. We can yeah, tell, but it's yeah. vocal. It's not not quiet by any means. That has been it for today's edition of KNX in Depth. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.